Hello and welcome to The Plants We Eat. This is the podcast where we take a look at the science, culture, and history behind the plants that we use for food. This is Jeff Gilman, the director of the University of North Carolina at Charlotte Botanical Garden and a plant history enthusiast. And I'm Cindy Proctor, part-time instructor at Central Piedmont Community College in Charlotte and a garden coach. And I just love helping people achieve their gardening ideals. Okay. And and today we're going to talk about gardening with vanilla. Okay. Which, you know, pretty pretty common garden plant, right? Yeah, I... I uh, Depending on where you are in the world. <laughs> that's true. That's true. <laughs> hey, before we get into vanilla, though, uh, we want to talk a little bit about cranberry again. We talked about cranberry about two weeks ago. And we actually, I had, uh, I, I received an email from Sarah from Massachusetts, and she pointed out that uh, where we said cranberries were grown most, uh, they weren't actually grown most there. And she was absolutely right. We appreciate I, that. I, I appreciate And you know, we much. are getting, um, one, it, it's really great to see the number of people who are tuning into this podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're, our numbers are way up there. <laughs> and um, if anybody has a question or thinks that we're wrong on something, and we very well could be, uh, <laughs> we, we certainly make mistakes, please let us know. You can reach me by email. You're welcome to email me at uh, jgilman, J-G-I-L-L-M-A-N, at uncc.edu, and and let me know what you think. We'd also love it if you'd rate our podcast. That said, cranberries, where are most of the cranberries in the United States produced? Number one producing state is Wisconsin, followed by Massachusetts with uh, New Jersey, Washington, and Oregon coming in with significant numbers also. Kind of makes sense, though, doesn't it? It it does make sense. Wisconsin, number one. Now, let's talk about vanilla. Vanilla. I love the taste of vanilla and everything. I do, too. I do too. And I don't even mind paying for it. No. And that's a, that's a great point and a great way to start because vanilla is, of course, the second most expensive spice have there is. Have you bought vanilla recently? I have not. No. Now the holidays are coming up. I did recently, and it was $30 for a few ounces. It, it doesn't surprise me. Um, vanilla prices are increasing quite a bit. Uh, this is due to some—well, Let's talk about where vanilla is produced. Okay. Vanilla is produced in a number of different areas uh, across the world. Right now, the, the greatest production is in Madagascar, followed by Indonesia, China, and Mexico. And hey, if anybody thinks that's wrong, you know, go ahead, email me. <laughs> let me let me know. I was going to say you're wrong because <laughs> it was there's some in Mexico too. Yeah, right? okay. in, Madagascar is number one, followed by Indonesia, China, and Mexico. Okay, okay, and in Madagascar, which is the biggest producer. There's been some weather issues and some other issues, which means that the price of vanilla has just skyrocketed recently. In fact, right now we're talking about $300, roughly $300 for a pound of vanilla. Wow. Which is obviously pretty expensive. And there's a lot of artificial uh, vanilla out there too. Well, let's get to that a little bit. Let's get to that a little bit later. So vanilla... Is is cool for so many reasons. (laughs) And and the number one... Vanilla... Is an orchid, and this is this is so incredibly cool. Let me tell you why this is cool. Because there's about twenty five thousand different types of orchids out there, and that's not a made up number. There's somewhere in the realm of twenty five thousand different types of orchids. With those uh, different types of orchids, besides their fragrance and their beauty, there's really only one orchid that is very valuable, and that is vanilla. I didn't know that. Yeah, that surprises that's, that's me a, a little. But yeah, let me let me let me. Uh, there was somebody who said, I, I saw this online, 
vanilla is the only orchid that's edible. Now, that's really not true. You can actually eat the flowers of most mm-hmm. orchids. And most orchids, you actually could eat the leaves. You wouldn't want to, but they're not, they're not outright toxic. But in terms of an actually economically important plant for anything besides, you know, the beauty of their flowers or their fragrance, um, really, you're just dealing with vanilla. Mm-hmm. Now, vanilla is actually the name of a genus, so a whole actual group of orchids. There's about 100 uh, different types of different species of vanilla, and of these 100 species, um, actually a few of them can, uh, a few of them have uh, value as a spice, but really only one is, is very common. So there's really only one is, is common to find out there very much, and it's called vanilla. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's called vanilla. Uh, and obviously very, very tasty stuff. Now, vanilla is native to Mexico. It was actually grown primarily by a tribe called the Teutonic, and the Aztecs took over the Teutonic, actually, and the Aztecs used to mix vanilla with their chocolate for their, you know, chocolatey drinks. Yum, yum. <laughs> you know, later on, vanilla was used for Coca-Cola. In fact, is used yes. for Coca-Cola. Coffee, can um, we not? Right. Yeah, sure. It's used for coffee too. Yeah, vanilla lattes. Need <laughs> I say more? Actually, vanilla mochas. Mm, there we go. I love my vanilla <laughs> mochas. Anyway, vanilla originally from Mexico, used with chocolate by the Aztecs. And, um, you know, the... Uh, the Spanish under Cortez, they, they came and they discovered vanilla for the West and they loved it. And that was fantastic. Um, of course, once you find this vanilla, you think, hey, can we grow it somewhere else closer to home? So vanilla was moved all over the globe in the, uh, in the 1500s, 1600s, 1700s. And after it was moved all over the globe, of course, well, nothing really happened. So here's the thing. Vanilla is actually a huge vine, uh, just this huge, heavy vine. We actually have some growing at the botanical gardens in the greenhouse. It does great for us. How old is the it? Vine, uh, the vines that we have? Uh-huh. Well, the vines that we have are probably 10 to 15 years old. Okay. Now, it is propagated by cuttings. You just take a cutting of this you know, big hunk of vine. It's very, very easy to grow. Mm-hmm. There is nothing. There are some orchids that are tough to grow. Not vanilla. There's nothing to propagating vanilla, which is why in the 16, 17, uh, early 1800s, why it spread all over the globe, because it was easy to just take a chunk of vine and plant it somewhere else. And explorers were notorious for, for taking samples of everything they came across that was foreign and trying it. And, and, ex- exactly. Right? In fact, I'm going to butcher a Thomas Jefferson saying right now, but <laughs> if you'll allow me to butcher it. Um, Thomas Jefferson said, there's no greater service that you can do for your country than to introduce a valuable plant. Hey, that sounded very eloquent. <laughs> yeah, um, he said it much better. Um, and I know that I wasn't quoting him exactly, but it, it <laughs> we fundamentally— get it. Yeah, We get it. Right, exactly. Um, so vanilla vines spread all over the place, and nothing happened. It would only produce vanilla, that is the actual pod. The, they, call it a, they call it the vanilla bean. It is not a bean— um, Vanilla, as an orchid, can't produce a bean. Rather, it's a pod. So they took, this, uh, they took this plant all over the place, and it produced absolutely nothing. Why did it produce nothing? Very simple reason. It produced nothing because you, they couldn't get the flower to pollinate itself. You see, the vanilla flower can only be pollinated, or is only pollinated, really, by one very specific 
type of bee. It's called a melipona bee. They're a stingless bee, and they have a, they have a very interesting honey that's considered medicinal. It's um it's somewhat uh, more watery than the honey that we're most mostly used to. It's also uh, typically a little bit more sour. Um, so just so you know, it, there's this other type of honey out there that most of you probably <laughs> haven't tried, different from mad honey, which we talked about <laughs> one of our early shows. Uh, but it produces a very interesting honey. So without this bee, the orchid could not be pollinated. Those of you who know orchids, and this is actually something that I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on today, but if you're interested, if you're interested in fertilization of flowers, orchids are some of the most interesting. In a lot of cases, these orchids have co-evolved with very specific insects uh, for pollination. So uh, if, you're, if you're ever interested in a specific orchid, not the vanilla orchid, just an interesting one. There's one called the pervy orchid. Oh, yes. P-E-R-V-Y. Look up the pervy orchid and how it, it actually has to pollinate itself, and it's just fascinating. They, it really is fascinating. Well, a lot of the—haven't the orchids uh, thrived on forest floors? So it doesn't surprise me that they're— It depends on the orchid. That's have, true. That's you have true. many—like the lady slipper orchids certainly have thrived on the forest floor, mm-hmm. but then you've got something like— um, well, the Vandas or the Phalaenopsis, which are epiphytes, mm-hmm. meaning that they live up in the air, and you'll mm-hmm. actually find them living in other trees. They're their... understory, though, I guess. is uh, Yes, typically, okay. they're, typically they are understory. Okay. Uh, not that there aren't orchids that can, can't handle full sun, but mostly these are understory plants. To pick out one other orchid, orchids have, again, just the most interesting pollination situations. Look up the trigger orchid. The trigger orchid is fascinating because they actually have a trigger and a bee or whatever it is will press this trigger, which will spring like a gun of pollen, splattering <laughs> pollen on the, on the insect's back, literally stuck there with glue. And then the insect will fly to the next plant with this glue shot onto his back and spread the pollen that way. Isn't nature awesome? Nature is awesome. So look, <laughs> up, the, look up the pervy orchid, look up the trigger orchid, and you'll have some really interesting stuff to watch. Okay, so come back to vanilla. We've got vanilla all over the world, and producing very few pods. I do want to point out, and this, this actually is important, that they weren't getting no pods. Without insects, you won't get no pods. You'll just get very, very few pods, maybe enough pods for, I don't know, your, uh, your latte, but you're not, <laughs> going to be, you're not going to be exporting it and, and making any money on it. Uh, by the way, you know, in the uh, late 1700s, Thomas Jefferson, he's supposed to have invented ice cream. He didn't invent ice cream, but he did help to bring ice cream to the United States. It was in the United States, but he certainly popularized it, wrote the first United States recipe for ice cream, and he flavored it with a vanilla bean. Yeah, one vanilla bean. Very wise. Yeah, he was. Brilliant. (laughs) This is is turning the Thomas Jefferson show. This is not the Thomas (laughs) Jefferson show. This is the Edmund Albius show, and we're going to get to Edmund Albius in just a minute. So, the orchid is all over the place. And it would, it would flower, but it couldn't be pollinated. Very few beans produced. What in the world were we going to do? This was made worse by the thing. Have you ever seen uh, a vanilla flower? Yes. You know how long they last? No. One day. Okay, that makes sense. So it, so it flowers for one day. But have you, you know, the flower looks like a strappy star with it a is. beautiful center. It's and then a, it gives rise to this beautiful six-inch pod. You know, that all that wonderful is. flavor, it just... It, 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 it's, it's an amazingly, it's amazing. it's an amazingly beautiful flower, mm-hmm. and it's a beautiful pod too. Mm-hmm. 
And that's before it's dried it's like, down and tastes good. It's like caviar inside if you open it. <laughs> the bean, the little um, vanilla. Well, the vanilla beans are teeny yes, tiny. Yes, that's I mean, what I mean. Like, it's yeah, like little it's, caviar inside because <laughs> I'm such a caviar eater. <laughs> so we had all these flowers all over the place, and nobody, nobody knew what to do. Then along comes this guy, Edmund Albius. I say this guy. It wasn't a guy. This was a 12-year-old kid. <laughs> Not only was he a 12-year-old kid, he was a 12-year-old orphan slave on the island of Reunion, which uh, Reunion was formerly known as Bourbon. But in 1841, which is the date to remember, or the year to remember, in 1841, this island was uh, known as Reunion. And um, what he discovered, uh, he had been talking with his, with his master about uh, actually had been working on, I believe it was uh, watermelon uh, and fertilizing watermelon. He, uh, he learned how to, you know, the, the male and female parts of, the, parts of the plant. So he discovered at 12 years old, he discovered the male and female parts of the orchid and figured out a way to join them together. Now this, it sounds so simple. It's not that simple in orchids. You see, there's actually this weird flap that separates the male and female parts. And you actually have to move this flap aside, then physically join the, the male and the female. And I'm making it sound so simple. There's complexity to it. And you can find this done online. We actually do it at the botanical gardens when we have a mm-hmm. flower. Um, and by the way, it also should be done at a specific time of day. It needs to be done in the morning. Mm-hmm. So there's some complexity to it. But look this up online because this is more complex than it sounds. <laughs> So this guy figured out how to move this flap aside and how to join the male and the female part. And when he did that, magically, well, not really magically, biologically, the, uh, the plant would become fertilized and would produce beans. And because of what this 12-year-old kid did, suddenly, suddenly, uh, these vanilla beans, which were all over the world, became economically important, whereas before, they were just a hope and a dream mm-hmm. that never came to fruition. So and a science is, project. A, a science project. Yeah, I mean, it, it was just a marvel and interesting and, yes. It was. It was fascinating. And, and so um, the, the story gets more interesting with Edmund Albius, and I'm gonna, I want to go into that just a little bit because, again, he was an interesting guy. After he figured out how to pollinate the vanilla, um, he was uh, released from slavery a, a few years later. Now, we say he was released from slavery. I've found conflicting reports of him being released by his master, and then slavery ended in 1848 on reunion. So some people say that uh, I've heard some reports that he became free because, well, all the slaves were freed. And I've heard some people say that his master freed him. I believe that the most convincing um, articles and the articles that um, I believe are, have the best sources are that he was uh, released by his, by his master, primarily because of the work that he did with, with the vanilla bean. Anyway, after he was released by his master, he moved into the city, and unfortunately, he got into a little bit of trouble. And there's no argument there. He definitely got into some trouble. Looks like theft. And he was um, sentenced to 10 years in, in prison. Now, again, his former master stepped in and said, look, this guy should not be in jail. Look at the service he did, and his sentence was shortened to five years. Now, again, I found, I found conflicting reports. Some reports say that he was sentenced to 10 years and served five years, 
and some reports say that he was sentenced to five years and served three years. Either way, we know that his sentence was shortened. And then after this, after he's released from jail, then he had a French botanist, John Michael Claude Ricard. <laughs> I know, what a great name. Um, said he had figured out how to do it and that he's the guy who taught Edmund how to do it. Oh. <laughs> and once again, his master stepped in, his, his former master. And uh, I'm going to give his former master a name, uh, Ferriol Bellier Beaumont. And I think I'm, I, I'm, I know that I'm butchering the name, but hey. You did pretty good. You think? You yes. speak French? No, but you it know, sounded good. You're just making me, okay, well, thanks. Okay. <laughs> um, he defended Edmund and made it show that it was pretty clear that Edmund accomplished what he said he did. Still, uh, things didn't go well for Edmund, and he did die actually on August 9th, 1880. In fact, this guy has the interesting, um, has an interesting case where he actually was born and died on the same day. He was born August 9th, 1829, and he died August 9th, 1880. There is a statue of him on the island of Reunion. And if you're wondering where the island of Reunion is, by the way, it's uh, in the Indian Ocean off the coast of uh, Madagascar. And it's a French island. And it's where a lot of different uh, tropical crops were actually grown by the French. A lot of spices. So interesting island. Edmund Albee is a very interesting person. And um, I have to say that after reading this whole story, I couldn't help but think that this kid um, was obviously bright and talented. And because of the situation he was born into, he never had the opportunity to fully utilize all of his uh, all of his abilities. And I found that just a shame. Um, this is not a guy who should have died penniless. I, I know that for sure. Well, that's true. But it, it, I'm also excited that he's noted. It, yeah, you know. uh, it is. It is nice. Yes, yes I, I absolutely agree with that, that he was noted. I just wish that he had gotten a little bit more, um, a little more credit than he did. Now, I noticed, um, or I read that there's been a lot of controversy around vanilla and that it would move from across the globe because storms would eradicate plantations. At one time, the cartel even controlled, you know, a good bit of the vanilla uh, market and it was disbanded in the 1980s. That's pretty mm -hmm. recent, you know. Yeah. And it and I I just was so um, excited that this was that vanilla that we take for granted, you know, really promoted a lot of um, history and um, activity in the marketplace, other than just flavoring my coffee it, and it ice did. cream. It did, and some of that's good, and some of that's bad. <laughs> it I mean, is. You, you You're read right. about you read about vanilla production in Madagascar today, and uh, I read about some murders as recently as this year mm. um, over people trying to steal vanilla. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, literally telling people when they were coming to get their vanilla mm -hmm. and the people getting upset at the people telling them when they were going to come take right. it and so killing them. Right. Um, it, 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 was, it was scary. Also, it, it, uh, it's a sad fact that a lot of um, vanilla, by the way, uh, well, anyway, it was interesting to me that... Um, a lot of forest land is getting destroyed to make room for the vanilla plantations where people can make a lot of money. 
It's a vigorous plant growing up to 20 feet tall, if allowed. Yeah. But you know, in the plantations— The grows 20 feet tall. The vine is even longer than that. Yes. <laughs> but they have to fold them over just to make them a sizable for humans to harvest, you know? And, and what I saw—and I'll, I'll say that this seems to be true from our, just our few vanilla plants out in the greenhouse— the folding over— uh, first of all, helps you reach, but it also seems to encourage flowering. I read that, yes. So the actual process— It's and, like a pruning. Again, right. Yeah. And, and again, from what we've seen in the greenhouse, I would back that up, that mm-hmm. the actual folding helps that. Now, over the years, vanilla seems to have created um, a, lot of, uh, a lot of uses for, it, for itself in terms of medicinals. Mm-hmm. It was said to have been added to Coca-Cola originally to help settle the stomach. Vanilla is certainly antimicrobial. You know, when you have these spices, when you have these different flavors, usually these different flavors, these spices, um, the plant develops them uh, evolutionarily so that it can either avoid uh, pests or make it more resistant to a disease or whatever. I mean, it's not, it's not to tantalize our taste buds. <laughs> you know, that's not the reason they develop these different oils. So it is, vanilla is uh, definitely antimicrobial. And it's said to have other reports too. My, my favorite quote that I, that I saw was um, by this guy, Bizarre Zimmerman, who is a German physician. And he claimed in his treatise uh, on experiences from 1762, he claimed that no fewer than 342 impotent men by drinking vanilla decoctions have changed into astonishing lovers of at least as many women. <laughs> They're just in a good mood. <laughs> They're just right. And, and in a 2012 study, uh, male Worcester rats actually showed increased sexual behavior when they took vanilla. So now you know. Now you just made the price of vanilla go up. <laughs> I, yeah, I'm forcing the price right up. Um, I'm not sure that many people listen to the podcast yet. <laughs> anyway, well, maybe we might have 342 uh, people. <laughs> anyway. Um, you know, to get off topic just slightly, but as long as I have this note here, I think I think I should say. <laughs> do you know where the uh, the name vanilla comes from? Oh, I read it, but I forgot. It's Spanish for small pod. Yes, that's, that's, that's right. That's, that's it. right. So very very simple reason yes. that it has the name. Um, vanilla, of course, produces vanillin. Vanillin is the primary uh, oil, flat primary flavoring mm-hmm. in vanilla. Mm-hmm. And the thing about Vanillin is that it's actually very, very simple to make. There's nothing to making vanillin. You can make it from eugenol. Um, by the way, eugenol is basically the same as clove oil, which coincidentally, we're going to be talking about cloves next week. Mm-hmm. And it can also be made from even certain lignin, which I, many of you don't know what lignin is, but it's a very common uh, plant compound. So it, it's actually very easy to make vanillin. And with the price of vanilla, um, a lot of people choose to go the artificial vanilla route. Understandably. Right, understandably, because yeah. mm-hmm. it's so much cheaper, and you can get most of the flavors there. Now, many of you are thinking, well, what about my vanilla extract? Is that real? Vanilla extract is real. As long as it doesn't say artificial. Imitation. Right. Then vanilla extract, the FDA requires at least 35% alcohol and 100 grams of vanilla per liter. So that'd be 13.35 ounces of vanilla per gallon. With less alcohol, it is considered a flavoring rather than an extract. Mm-hmm. So now you know. 
Now, I hear you talk about how easy it's gr- it is to grow vanilla. Now, have you ever grown orchids in your home, or are you comparing it to your beautiful greenhouse here okay, at UNCC? So, so growing a, a vanilla vine at home is actually not very difficult. It needs a south-facing window. Yes. And it will grow. However, getting it to flower in a home is well-nigh impossible unless you have a greenhouse or an incredibly sunny sunroom. Yes. So vanilla, and humidity. Yes, yes, yes. yes so yes. getting the vanilla vine to grow, not a problem. Getting it to flower and produce vanilla beans, extremely difficult. Now, just a warning in case you want to produce vanilla. Do be aware that from flowering to final production of those beans, and it does take processing even after the mm-hmm. beans are harvested, we are talking a year or more. Mm-hmm. Eight to nine months from flower to fruit, then the fruit is picked, and then it is it goes through cycles of drying, uh, goes through some cycles of heating to mm-hmm. stop fermentation. Mm-hmm. So this is not a um, it's, it's not an incredibly difficult process, but it's not an easy process either, and it is a long process. So don't think that you can just start growing your own. Although it would be cool to try if you have an amazing sunroom. But you know, orchids can be a challenge in itself. You don't have to just focus on the vanilla to feel, you know, to feel uh, uh, a challenge, you know. <laughs> but that, that's true. Well, orchids in general can be difficult. They're usually overwatered, you know, because yes. they have aerial roots and they, they're they using those aerial type roots. That's not the right botanical name for them, but to— uh, Epiphytic roots. I know, I know. <laughs> but to climb up, you know, or to you to help support them on structures. Mm-hmm. What kind and, of orchids are you growing in your home right now? I don't have any right now because I um I I feel like a failure with orchids <laughs> because they do take some attention that sometimes I can't give it. You know something? I actually have orchids in my house right now, I, and you know I don't. Have I a don't lot believe of, you. And you know the reason I have orchids in my house right now what? because they are so simple. So <laughs> you are. <laughs> We're gonna have a fight. <laughs> Jump across the Jump table. Jump across the table. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> um, so the thing about orchids is, you're right; they do take some certain specific care. But um, so, just so you know, at the uh, UNC Charlotte Botanical Gardens, we actually have a tremendous range of orchids. Um, everything from your simple phalaenopsis, which are your moth orchids, the ones you get at Trader Joe's or Home Depot, mm-hmm. up through Oncidiums, Dancing Ladies, Vandas. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of you know these names. Some of you don't. If you don't. Uh, hey, I'm hoping that throwing these names out encourages you to to look them up. Me too. Um, or to own one. Or to own one. And to practice with it and have fun. That's right. Yeah. The, the orchids take different levels of care, speaking as someone, again, who who, who has them in the greenhouse. Um, but the one that's most common is the, is the phalaenopsis or the moth orchid. And the reason that it's so common and so popular is that it doesn't take that much effort, and it mm-hmm. can grow in low-ish light. It can grow on your kitchen table. And if it doesn't get any direct light, it's going to be okay. Well, the reason why uh, folks may feel like it's a, it's a failure is that it usually they bloom and then they shut down for a while and then yes. they bloom. And so that shutdown period makes everyone feel like they have failed their orchid on, for, for some reason. But it's also, we don't have a prominent space mm-hmm. that we want to devote, you know, to our non-flowering orchid. <laughs> At, no, absolutely, and, and absolutely. That, that, and overwatering is such a big thing too. So it 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 is difficult for the moth orchid. <laughs> they'll go through nine months without flowering. I got no reaction. Okay. <laughs> for the moth orchid, you can go through nine months with no flowering, mm-hmm. and and I'll admit it looks, you know, yeah, it doesn't look great. It does it doesn't look great. 
but then it'll go through four months where it's got these beautiful blooms. What True. The, what your Trader Joe's, your Home Depot, what they do is when it goes out of bloom, they throw it away. Mm-hmm. And if you can get orchids then and you're willing to put up with nine months of it looking just not that great, then, you know, you can, you can have four months of, of beauty. So I've lived in cities where nurseries took your orchid away and babysat it when it was not blooming. Are you serious? I am what a, serious. What a great idea. I know. That is a great idea. We could do that next if this I doesn't think we work should. out. I, th- I think we should. <laughs> okay. You know, I actually um, worked with a charity once uh, where we took um, the orchids from Trader Joe's, actually throwing them away, mm-hmm. and we um, grew them to the next bloom cycle, and then we gave them to— uh, Habitat for Humanity mm-hmm. for new houses, and it was it was really nice. That is nice. Yeah, so it was, it was a it was a good idea. Uh, anyway, but besides, if you're looking for other easy to grow orchids, and by the way, when I say little care, I do want to define that a little bit. This is this is probably the only time I'm going to get to talk about this on on this show because we're not going to talk about orchids again because there's no others that we eat. <laughs> um, orchids should be watered usually only once every week or two. They should never be planted in regular household potting media. Big chunks of mulch. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Big chunks of mulch. So remember that. And they tell you the ice cube method. The ice cube method is terrible. Why? So the ice cube method, first let me describe it, is where you put ice cubes on top of the soil or on top of the chunks of mulch. Right. And they leak through and you slowly water them. Right. We killed every orchid we did this way. Um, and the reason, it's pretty simple. The moth orchids are used to 50 degrees and above. When they get in contact with 32 degrees, it's a slow death. Mm-hmm. So don't use the ice cube method for watering. Just put them under the sink, run a little bit of water on them, for, and literally run the water for a minute or, or two. Then take the orchid out, let it dry off a little bit, and set it back out on the table. So I have to admit, you know more about this than I do, and that's not going to happen again. <laughs> Well, with the orchid room, we've had to deal with orchids um, a lot. I know. I'm teasing you. <laughs> so anyway. Well, anything else you'd like to talk about with the orchids? No. But I, I'm kind of wanting to try it again. Try? Okay, so— You've inspired me. If you—try if, the moth orchid first for okay. ease. The second orchid to try— The phalaenopsis. Look, the phalaenopsis. Okay. The second orchid to try is the oncidiums or the dancing ladies. The dancing ladies are incredible yeah, I like orchids, those and they too. smell they smell fantastic. Mm-hmm. So many fragrances in the orchids. Not with the moth orchids, but the other orchids have incredible fragrances. So, how about next week we talk about cloves? All right, excited about that. I, ver- I am very much. It's going to be fun. All right. Well, thank you all for listening. This has been a production of the UNC Charlotte Botanical Gardens in coordination with the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences and the IELTS Group, also at UNC Charlotte. We look forward to talking to you next week. 